Welcome back. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan today. Uh, we have been having a conversation for the last half hour or so about the fact that I am a conscientious objector uh, to electoral politics. Uh, I made the decision back around 2013, 2014, um, that I just could no longer in good conscience participate in a system um, that is not working remotely the way that the founding fathers intended for it to, to work. Um, I see a political system that has been captured by two major political parties that frequently are disinterested in uh, governing according to the will of the people at large, and instead they're focused on trying to advance the interests of their own uh, little subset of the population. In the last half hour, I read uh, an extensive uh, part of George Washington's farewell address where he warned about exactly this kind of thing. He warned about the dangers of political parties, of factions, and how they could subvert uh, the genius of the political system that the founders were handing down to us. And we had a couple of callers right before the break, and we still have a couple of folks on the line. So uh, I want to make sure that we get to to these callers. Let's go to Dan. Dan, first off, thank you for being patient. I know you've been waiting on the line for quite some time. I appreciate your your patience. What would you like to discuss? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. But I just wanted to, a couple of quick points. Um, Dick Morris was on this weekend on his Newsmax show saying that uh, stop and frisk was a good thing. Uh, just completely throwing our civil rights, you know, into the air. I mean, he did have some statistics. It did do a lot. It did, it did reduce crime greatly. But at what cost? You know, we, we lost civil rights in that process. Um, and there's the old guard Republican, Dick Morris, saying it's a good thing. Uh, but like a previous caller mentioned, a vote for a libertarian or a constitutionalist at this point would just be a vote for a Democrat, which is definitely where we don't want to be. The Marxist agenda is is running deep in our society right now. Well, I want to um, challenge that assumption, though. So so uh, freeway, it, it's funny because as a libertarian, I heard this all the time. Uh, one party or another saying, well, if you vote for the other guy, um, then then you're really vote or rather if, if you don't vote for our guy, then you are really voting for the other guy. And that's not true at all. And, and again, I heard this from both sides. I heard right. I heard I, Democrats when when George Bush, George W. Bush was in office, the Democrats were saying, well, if if you don't vote for our guy, then you're voting for George Bush again. And a lot of libertarians were stringently opposed to George W. Bush because of his, uh, you know, warlike tendencies and such. Um, and and so I don't think that there should be an assumption that somebody deciding to vote independently and go for a minor party, whether it be the Libertarians, whether it be the Green Party, whether it be the Constitution Party, I don't think anyone should assume that that's a vote for the party that they don't like. Uh, no, it, well, it's a vote against the two major parties together. Um, right, I, so, well, uh, hold on. I, I want to push on this a little bit more because this gets to the reason why I supported ranked choice voting. Ranked choice voting frees us up from this insane kind of dichotomy. With ranked choice voting, we would have four candidates on the general election ballot. You could have two Republicans and two Democrats. You could have a Republican, a Democrat, and two minor party candidates. You could have three of one of the major party, one of the other. But, but one way or another, 
the voters could say who they really wanted to win and they wouldn't have to worry that by casting the vote for the person that they really believed in that it was somehow going to let the greatest of evils achieve office like that's one of the things that ranked choice voting does is it allows voters to vote their conscience without being concerned that it will inexorably lead to you know the the worst option being elected now maybe what they view as the worst uh, option will win anyway but at least they can be comfortable that their vote wasn't the one that caused that outcome. So that's that's part of the reason that I think that ranked choice voting is actually a huge improvement over the status quo because it gets us away from this idea of, you know, choosing lesser of evils. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And I, I don't know enough about ranked choice. I've seen pros and cons about, about it, um, but I don't know enough to really make a decision on it myself. Uh, but the, my point was more about the fact that I see what you're saying about ranked choice. But it's about the fact that a vote that's not for the the guy that you would rather see in office is a is a chance for the other guy to get ahead. And as we saw with this last election, where 110 percent of the population came out to vote in some areas, um, every vote counts. Um, I think it's important for people to come out in droves to vote this time, so that there can't be um, any questions as to um, you know ballot harvesting and so on. Um, and I do. I, I, I'm not against rank choice. I just don't know enough about it. It does seem like a good idea, like you're saying. Um, and then just one more quick thing. I have not seen any governors that are trying to ban books, any Republican governors. All I have seen are uh, people that want age-appropriate books in schools for children. Um, at the same time, we forget about all the books that the Democrats banned over the last few years. Um, you know, you always just see all the gaslighting from the media about uh, Republicans banning books, but they forget to mention, you know, Huck Finn and the uh, Great Gatsby, all these other books that um, the left actually banned, not just decided that it should be age appropriate in schools. So I kind of disagree. I don't know. I have not seen a governor say they want to ban books. Okay, so so I what what they have been trying to do is to limit students' access to the materials. Okay, right, age appropriate. Well. Again, who gets get to decide? Do the parents get to decide, or 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 does the does the uh, does the legislature of the state get to decide? So so well, you, I do agree that there is a significant difference between imposing a ban, in other words, saying you're not allowed to possess or sell this book within this jurisdiction. That's a ban, um, right. and saying we are going to remove these books from the public library shelves. And that is, this is actually an issue that the U.S. Supreme Court addressed in a case called uh, Pico versus Board of Education back in the 1980s. Um, and I've, for years, wanted to litigate a follow-up to this case. But basically, the U.S. Supreme Court said that when you're talking about this question of intentionally removing books from a school library based on the subject of those books, because of the content of those books, that violates the First Amendment. The government is not permitted to make decisions about who gets access to what materials based on the content of those materials. And, and so, um, you're correct. It's not a ban in the sense of 
prohibiting someone from possessing or selling or 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 purchasing one of these books, but it is still um, an act that carries with it important First Amendment implications. And I think that these efforts are unconstitutional. I do think that they are efforts to control uh, what information citizens, including you know underage citizens, have access to. I think those decisions ought to be made by the parents, not by government oh, I- officials. I agree with that wholeheartedly, but I also have to ask, does that mean that Hustler Magazine should be allowed in a grade school library? So actually the Supreme Court addressed this. The Supreme Court addressed this, and they said there is a difference between making an editorial decision about what books will be added to a library and then deciding later we are going to remove these books because of their content. Right. Um, It's one thing to make a decision now that we have had these books as part of the collection. We're going to remove them because no one's checking them out. No one's demonstrating any interest in them. And it has nothing to do with the content of them and saying, well, look, we don't like the idea of books that talk about um, transgenderism as a positive thing or we don't like books that discuss homosexuality and someone grappling with um, their sexual feelings and interests. Um, that deals with the content of the books, and that's why it still has First Amendment implications. Now, to be sure, the Supreme Court that we have right now may end up going a different direction than the Supreme Court went in uh, Pico versus Board of Education. That's possible. Um, but But from where I sit... It is still a First Amendment problem to say we don't like. Uh, so, for example, you raise the issue of uh, Huck Finn and other books that have been restricted or removed based on the language that was used in those books. That's wrong, too. See, like that's not right. To, right it's a bipartisan and so problem. so I um, yes. It's a bipartisan problem. I think the question is, is it actually a problem? Like, I don't think that someone can legitimately say uh, it's okay for our side to restrict access to books based on their content, but it's not okay for the other side, right? I think it has to be all or nothing. So either um, we're going to allow people to ban books like Huck Finn, like the Bible, like, um, you know, what are the... You know, uh, uh, to kill a mockingbird uh, based on their content, or we're not allowed to ban these books about transgenderism or um, you know homosexuality or anything like that. I, I don't think that there's a middle ground there where someone can legitimately straddle the fence. And and sure. I side in favor of you know especially if the books are already part of the library's collection. Um, I, I believe it violates the First Amendment to exclude them based on their content. Uh, I appreciate you calling, Dan. We do have a couple more callers I want to make sure that we get to. So uh, let's move on real quickly to Rick. Rick, you're on the air with Dave Rowland. Yes, uh, I was the one that called in about the uh, St. Charles case to start with. And so I kind of got that going. But, you know, part of mine was that the Attorney General and uh, Mr. Ashcroft's office both had stonewalled her case so she couldn't be heard. And you know that saying, when mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. And I'm sorry she took it out on you. And I hope that whatever website that is that's calling you a rhino, uh, somebody gets through to them that, you know, she's unhappy because she's a Republican and Republicans in those two offices stonewalled her 
And you brought out another statute, you say, that dissolves her case. And I hope that the attorney or the judge that finally hears that case hasn't heard anything about this. <laughs> but well, thank hey, you for uh, your word. Rick, thank you so much for calling in both on Thursday and today. I appreciate it. Uh, we are going to have to go into another commercial break. We'll come back on the other side. We still have a couple of folks on the line. I'll try and get to them then. If you'd like to call in and discuss any of this, the number is 1-800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, and I am filling in for Gary Nolan today. We have been talking a little bit about electoral politics, the dangers of political parties, and uh, the way that the spirit of faction and partisanship has been playing out in our current system despite George Washington's warnings from the earliest days of the Republic about the dangers of political parties and factions. We have a caller on the line. Mike has been waiting for a long time. Mike, thank you for your patience. Uh, what is it you'd like to chip in on on this topic? I'd like to talk about school choice. Okay, great. Uh, I, I'd like to do away with the real estate tax and the personal property tax and get the government completely, totally out of the education business. That's federal, state, and local. Anytime the government gets involved in something, they screw it up. Uh, it's best left to the people to solve their own problems, and they have totally screwed up. All, all these problems will go away if they'll just let people put their kids in the school of their choice. And okay, so I, I want to explore this just a little bit because this is actually a point on which Gary and I disagree a little bit. When when Gary says getting the government entirely out of education, my understanding is that he would also end any public funding for education. In other words, it's not that um, we would have school choice the way that I talk about it, where the government says you choose what school you want to go to and the taxpayers will foot the bill for it. Um, Gary, I believe, would prefer that there just not be educational funding at all. And so um, which which one of these approaches are you favoring? Do you favor government not paying for education at all or do you, do you favor uh, the government letting the money follow the student and then the parents choosing which, which school to send the kid to? Get the government completely and totally out of it. I don't think there's anything in the U.S. Constitution about government involvement in education. I'm not sure about that. That's true. No, you're right. There, there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution about it. There is something in the Missouri Constitution about it. Um, so, so what you're proposing would actually require um, a, a pretty substantial change to the Missouri Constitution. We actually have an entire article of the Missouri Constitution devoted to education. And one of the things that it currently requires is the government is required to devote at least 25% of uh, its expenditures to the purpose of education. So that there was a, a case about that, oh, probably about 15 years ago. Um, where someone sued saying that the state was not spending, uh, as much of 
its uh, expenditures as it was supposed to uh, on education. And ultimately, the Missouri Supreme Court said, no, it's it's spending uh, plenty on education. And so um, if we were going to, to kind of get the government out of education altogether, we'd have to adjust the Missouri Constitution accordingly. I come at it from a different perspective, though. So I think that um, there is an important uh, element or an important role to play in making sure that students have the ability to get an education. Um, and, and Gary talks about historically, um, you know, even when there wasn't public funding for education, uh, many private individuals would provide um, education to the poor folks in their community. And that's true. I've, I've done some research on this. Um, even in Missouri, before the public school system was established, um, if you lived, if, if you were a poor family, a poor white family, I want to make sure I specify, and you lived near a very wealthy family, the wealthy family might bring in a school teacher or a tutor uh, to educate their children, and then they would kind of invite the uh, uh, families from the surrounding area to also send their children to to be educated, um, and sometimes they would expect a little bit of money in res- in return, but usually not. There was kind of this noblesse oblige, this this idea that they needed to help those who were less fortunate. So education was certainly happening even when the government was not footing the bill for it. And I don't dispute what Gary says about that. Um, I don't know that that is the ideal system, though, because that still um, leaves people hanging in areas where there is no wealthy family to pick up the bill. There is no, um, you know, pre-established set of resources to ensure that that the kids are going to have access to education. And I think that education is crucially important. I think that um, you know, providing the opportunity to learn um, allows us to identify, you know, the exceptionally talented and, and skilled folks who will then go on to make our society better. And if, if they never have access to education in the first place, maybe we miss out on that genius. And um, and so I do think that that there is an important role for government to play in just making sure that children have the resources necessary to become educated. I think part of the problem is that right now it's funneled towards public schooling as kind of the primary, if not exclusive, mechanism for um, for that public funding. Do you see where I'm coming from on that? I'm not. You don't have to agree, of course, but I'm, I just want to make sure you understand. I do disagree, okay. but I like what you said uh, previously uh, that we can disagree and we can still be agreeable and we can still be friends and all that. Good yes, stuff. sir. But yes, sir. Any, any, anyway, as long as men are free, they'll figure it out. I promise you, they'll figure it out. It may not be perfect right off the bat. On that, we Maybe. absolutely agree. All right, sir. Thank you, and you have a good day. Yeah, thank you for calling in, Mike. You know, that is... To me, the most important thing, and this is what I was hitting on in the last hour, you don't have to be disagreeable to hold differences of opinion. Um, you know, I I take it as a point of great pride that I talk to people from all different perspectives. Last year, I actually represented a, an out-and-out socialist um, who was running for office and uh, their opponent was trying to keep her off the ballot. Um, you know what? I disagreed with this candidate on almost every policy position she wanted to to advance. 
But the fact of the matter is, is we could still have a conversation and I could still represent her because you know what? The Constitution belongs to everybody. And, and the fact that I disagreed with her on policy said nothing about whether the people should be allowed to choose her if they wanted to. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's the most important thing we can do is learn how to disagree agreeably. The number is 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390. Feel free to call in. Let's continue this conversation. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. Gary Nolan Show. We are back. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, filling in for Gary Nolan today. Thank you so much for listening in. We've been having a rollicking conversation about um, the electoral system, and it kind of moved in the direction of uh, of education funding in the last segment. Uh, we do have a caller on the line. I want to make sure that we go ahead and get to her. Marie, you are on the air with Dave Rowland. What would you like to say about all this? Well, on the topic of public education... I don't have a problem if the parents would want to take their their money, like uh, the voucher system, as, but they're going to have to pay, make up the balance of whatever school they go to. And if they pull the money out of public schools, what I see is taxes are going to go up to cover the deficit. Well, uh, maybe. Um, so... A well-constructed school choice program can address this issue. So um, there are a few a few points to hit here. The, the first is that uh, most of the school choice programs that have been set up say um, if you, as a school, opt into the choice program, then you are agreeing to accept the amount that the government is going to pay as the full tuition for the student. In other words... There is not any excess that the parent has to make up themselves. If the school is going to participate in the school choice program, um, the amount that the government pays for the child is all that has to be paid. Um, so okay. that that addresses that. Um, and then as far as the um, potential gap in the, the funding for the schools that are uh, that, that the voucher students are leaving um it's addressed in a couple of different ways usually the scholarships that are used to go to the other um the the private options or the charter options um they will be for a fraction of what the government was paying for the kids to go to the public school so uh sometimes it's like 60 percent sometimes it's 75 percent of uh what it was costing to educate the child in the public school. So then that amount of money uh, might get withdrawn from the pot of education funding, although not always. You can, you can set these up in different ways so that you're not necessarily drawing the resources for the scholarships from the general education fund. But let's assume that you're withdrawing it from the general education fund. Um, Yes, that is less money overall, but you are also required to, or you're not required to educate as many students. So you have a larger per student allocation for the children who remain because you've got the, um, the 25 to say 40% of the funding that did not leave with the child that went to a different school. Um, that remains in the 
pot of education funding that can then be redistributed among the students that are remaining in the public schools. Now, if you have well, enough I'm, students I, I'm leaving, I'm not sure about that. Well, I'm I, not I, sure about that because I, 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 from my understanding, the way the schools are funded, it's number of students in seat, which means once they count the number of students in that school district in that school at that particular year and that's what they pay on it's not that they get this amount of money every year it's how many students are there that way the money is distributed equally throughout the state for large schools versus small schools so, so if you're pulling students out in, in missouri is currently a hybrid system so um there is a per student allocation where where if the kid is not in school, then the school just doesn't get that money. But there is also a more general allocation as well. Um, and it varies from from district to district because of the different taxing levels. Um, but but my broader point is is if that's the concern, you can definitely um, draft a school choice proposal to address that concern. It can certainly be done to address that concern. So, you know, maybe if we're talking about, you know, only providing for scholarships and not addressing this other aspect of educational funding in Missouri, um, then, you know, the problem you've identified might actually be legitimate. But again, right now we don't have a school choice system in Missouri, not really, not not the kind of system um, that, that I'm envisioning. And if we were going to have that, then we could address these problems by, you know, um, drafting the the statute appropriately. So the problem is not one of concept. The problem is one of execution. You see what I'm su- suggesting? And again, you don't have to agree. I, I, you don't have to agree. But. No, I, I see your concept. The other question, which is kind of a, I don't know whether you'd call it a dig or what, but of all these people, I'm going to say including yourself, who are proposing to change the educational funding, how many of you guys had kids go through public school? I went through and public where school. where was your, do you have children? I have three children, two of whom are, are in, in public, public school. school? The, okay. the two-year-old's not right. in public school. I, I, I sing the praises of Mexico public schools to anyone who will listen. Um, I am very fortunate that that my children are going to the same public schools that, that my wife grew up in, that my wife's father grew up in. Um, we have a wonderful schools in in Mexico, and um, they have done a fantastic job with my kids. And that's why we don't homeschool. We we Jennifer and I actually talked significantly about homeschooling, but we ended up deciding that we wanted to give the public schools an opportunity to kind of prove themselves and they have um you know we've we've got advanced learners and the schools have been doing an outstanding job in fostering their interests and their talents and we think that's good for our kids we think it's good for the other kids in those classrooms so we're we're thrilled with it well i i applaud you for continuing to keep your your kids in public schools and being proactive in the schools a lot of in my opinion, and I did have children go through public school, part of the reason that schools are not doing well or there's problems is parents are not involved. There's a lot of parents out there that just send their kids to school and they don't pay any attention. And that's a downfall on our school system and the parents. 
Yeah, like, you know, and I, I agree. I, I think that parental involvement is important, and it, I think it's important at whatever school you go to. A, a number of choice schools um, in other states actually make it part of um, a condition for students coming to their schools that the parents have to be involved. Like the, the parents have to sign a contract when uh, they enroll their children in the school pledging that they will spend a certain amount of time uh, each week working with their children on their education, that they have to come in for uh, student teacher conferences, that they have to be active in their child's education. And that is incredibly important and it can be done in both private and public school settings. Um, and I think the real challenge is um, figuring out how to establish a, a system that will foster that parental involvement. But um, I, I, again, I continue to point out that not everyone is as fortunate as we have been as far as the schools that I grew up in and the schools that we've got in Mexico. Um, you know, the system doesn't necessarily work for all learners. And, and what I think is that school choice allows parents to find the system that works best for their family. And if it's not the public schools, then by all means, they should have an opportunity to seek out an alternative that's going to fit their family better. And I think when parents have that flexibility, when they have that opportunity, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. You see what I'm saying? And I understand you, you may disagree with me on that, but, but that's how I view it. And that's why I think school choice is such a good thing. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time, and you keep fighting the good fight. And those that don't agree with you, they're going to fight their fight. But you keep right on. I will do that. Thanks so much for calling, Marie. I appreciate it. Um, so, you know. <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting um, that, that she went to that question about uh, about whether we had our kids in public schools or not. Uh, when I first started as a public interest litigator, I was working for the Institute for Justice, and that was one of the questions that, that I got in my interview for IJ um, was how to deal with people who... Um, were not in favor of school choice when they said, well, do you just hate the public schools? And I was thrilled to be able to say, no, I don't hate public schools. Public schools work really well for some families. I think, you know, again, the, the real concern that I have is sometimes public schools are like trying to put a um, square peg in a round hole. And, and what school choice does is it provides flexibility and opportunity for parents otherwise who might not have those options. Um, it allows them to find the environment that works best for their child, works best for their family. Um, and I can only think of that as a good thing. Um, so again, you know, I, I welcome disagreement. I, I'm always happy to bounce ideas around with, with people who disagree with me. We may even have a conversation uh, on the other side of this upcoming commercial break where we, we toss around some ideas uh, that, that maybe I don't agree with. But again, that's part of the design of this country. The founders gave us this system so we could have these conversations and then intelligently choose the policies that we think are best. That's one thing that parties don't always afford us. This is Dave Roland. The number is 800-529-5572-573-874-9390. Feel free to call in. This is Dave Roland on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Roland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. You know, uh, we, we let off the show uh, talking about uh, how I, a 
dyed-in-the-wool Tennessee fan uh, am still kind of glowing over the outcome of uh, the contest with Alabama this week. And I, it occurred to me in this last commercial break that there's a little bit of an irony in that, Brian, mm-hmm. uh, because I have also been railing uh, about the evil of partisanship and faction. Um, and it occurred to me that the same emotions that we feel about college football teams may be the same emotions that people feel related to their political parties. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, we, we, Brian uh, asked me in the commercial break. Because he, like, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> Brian, what, what was the question that you the asked? The question was when you woke up on Sunday morning. Okay, first of all, you went to bed on Saturday night feeling really good about feeling really yourself good. and... And I, this happens to me all the time. It's like, wow, we won. And then you wake up the next morning, and the first thing you think about is... Yes! That's exact. <laughs> that was the precise tune that was going through my mind. Yes. I basked in the orange glow of the sun rising over the horizon, <laughs> and I thought to myself, that actually happened. <laughs> it happens to me, too. And, of course... <laughs> The Chiefs lost yeah. uh, yesterday, and yeah. so I went to bed feeling kind of lousy. It was a good but game, though. I expected them to lose, not because I'm not a Chiefs fan. It's just because the Bills are so good. They're uh, well, really yeah. hard to beat, and I knew this going That's in. That's how I felt about Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Now, if... And, of course, I woke up. That was the first thing I thought about this morning, and it's like, yeah, it's Monday, and Chiefs lost. And, oh, well, put on my... Uh, Put on my clothes and get after it. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> so, so here's here's the really fascinating thing. Now, of course, um, <laughs> the the factions that we have related to college football and political factions are very different in the sense that um, they have very different impacts on the real world, right? You know. Um, Football teams don't determine public policy. Uh, so, so that's why political factions are so much more dangerous because of the potential impacts. But it's not without some impact. One of the things I was telling Brian is, is there was actually a study done, um, a few years back in Louisiana and it showed that judges in the state of Louisiana on Monday mornings following an LSU loss were likely to hand down harsher sentences <laughs> for criminals that had been convicted than they would hand down on Mondays following an LSU victory. Wow. And <laughs> That's noteworthy. It, it is noteworthy and a little bit disturbing. You know, we, yeah. we don't want to think about the possibility that, that things like this would influence how long someone is in prison. But, um, but yeah, so I, I guess I do have to acknowledge that um, college football partisanship could also have real-world impacts in a way that um, is not completely benign. But, but it sure does feel good when your team wins like that. It, it is. It's, uh, it's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I want to let listeners know um, I'm excited about what's coming up on the other side of um, uh, on the top part of the 11 o'clock hour. Uh, We're going to have my friend Kim Herman from the Southeastern Legal Foundation on to discuss a little bit some of the work that she has been doing in Missouri. And um, I want to point out that it it actually 
you know, is, is one of those situations where I called into question what someone said earlier about things that were happening in public schools. But Kim has been doing a lot of research into things that are happening in Missouri public schools and has engaged in litigation related to those efforts. And so um, although I have been skeptical about some of the stuff that's been voiced concerns, uh, like I, I don't actually believe that there are uh, kitty litter boxes out in the halls, and I don't believe that schools are installing um, bars for children who identify as bats to hang from upside down. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there are not some legitimate concerns about things that are happening in public schools. Now, um, as a little bit of a preview, Kim and I shared a, uh, to be clear, Kim and I have been friends for years. Um, I uh, really respect her work as an attorney. She is a brilliant, brilliant attorney. Um, and uh, so I, I have appreciated her intellect for a long, long time. And then we got to work together on a case in the last couple of years. Um, but, but we actually disagreed a little bit, and we were on the same panel for a Federalist Society conversation um, talking about critical race theory. And so a lot of the work that Kim has been doing, looking into things that have been happening in Missouri schools, and elsewhere has had to do with um, critical race theory, or at least what she describes as critical race theory. And we found ourselves having differing positions on this um, because I think that although I define critical race theory differently than I think uh, she and other conservatives do, um, I actually think it's a very good thing for students to be exposed to um, different perspectives when it comes to understanding our nation's history. And I anticipate that maybe in my conversation with Kim, we will discuss that a little bit more because that was kind of one of the most important elements of this Federalist Society debate that we had back in January. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited to have Kim on to talk about her excellent work with Southeastern Legal Foundation. That's coming up uh, at the top of the hour, probably around 11.06. So be sure to, to keep listening for that. Um, in the meantime, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to touch really quickly on an important Supreme Court case, uh, that I meant to talk about last week and we never got around to it. Um, and it has to do with the, the question of federalism. So I've talked a lot today about the system our founding fathers set up. And one of the most important elements of that is they wanted to prevent the states from setting up trade barriers against each other. And that's why the Commerce Clause to the United States Constitution gave Congress the authority to regulate interstate commerce. Now, I do disagree heartily with a lot of what the courts have allowed Congress to do in the name of that power. But the fact of the matter is, is that the, the most important element of, um, of this particular aspect of the Constitution is to prevent states from erecting trade barriers against each other. California has adopted a rule that applies to uh, how pigs are raised uh, for on pork farms, and imposing its rule would effectively impose the same rule on most of the rest of the country, even though 
Um, it has to do only with the moral concerns that Californians have about industrial um, pig farming. And so the Supreme Court heard arguments in this case, and I think the Supreme Court's going to do the right thing, and they're going to hold that the Commerce Clause prevents California from imposing this rule that effectively controls most of the rest of the country. So that's something to keep your eyes on. I think it's going to be a good ruling in a few months. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmerio Network. If you'd like to call in, it's 800-529-5572 or 573-874-9390.